The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And just a note about this center, um, like Maureen is a volunteer. The whole community is supported by volunteers. So um, I see a few out here in the community. Uh, if you get inspired and you like coming and you want to participate, um, there's ample opportunity for you to get involved. And we all appreciate it, really, a great deal. I'm really, um, really happy to see everybody here tonight. I was really anxious and kind of stressed out about talking tonight because it's not something I do very often. But as soon as I saw everybody practicing and, you know, kind of doing that, my heart was just sort of filled with mudita and I just became really relaxed about the whole thing, you know. Because, oh, here's Jeff. A regular. Um, because one of the things I've done since um, IMC moved to this building, and Jeff knows this, is I offer basic meditation instruction, which I think some of you are here tonight at. It's every Thursday at 6.15. And I love doing it, you know, because it gives me an opportunity to meet people coming to the practice, you know, for the first time, often. Maybe they've never meditated in their whole lives. Or they've done other things. So it's just really fun for me. I get really excited. I probably talk way too much. You know, we don't sit quite enough. <laughs> right? Uh, so this seat's a little different for me. Um, I think the last talk I gave like this was about three and a half years ago. And it was called a way-seeking talk. And this may be part two. Way-seeking part two. Yeah. Um, There's a, a person on a two-month retreat a couple years ago, um, Mary Orr read a quote that I found really beautiful, and I thought I'd start the talk tonight with it. And it's really going to sort of be the theme of my talk tonight. So it's a, a quote from John O'Donohue, who was an Irish per- man. He was a priest and he was a poet. and He died very young. In 2008, he was 52. But... Um, I think you might enjoy it. I might read it twice. I would love to live life like a river flows, surprised at its own unfolding. I would love to live life, excuse me, I would love to live like a river flows, surprised at its own unfolding. And in some ways, to me, that's, that's really kind of what the Buddha taught. And that's what this practice gives us the opportunity to do. To be surprised in this moment as it arises. To meet this moment without any kind of control or kind of expectation or wanting it to be this way or not wanting it to be that way. It's funny, 
I, what I notice, there's a story that Ajahn Brahm tells about building a brick wall, his first brick wall. Some of you know the story. And he, he puts this wall up very slowly, teaches himself how to, to lay bricks, and it's a pretty tedious process. But he gets like these thousand brick wall perfectly up, and he, there's two bricks that aren't right. And it, he went to his teacher and says, oh, I, I got to tear the thing down. I can't, I can't live with it. It's, you know, and his teacher said, no way. <laughs> no way, right? And so, what, so for a long time, people would come in, you know, and they'd look at the wall and, and uh, you know, somebody, he'd be all like, well, don't you see those two bricks, you know? Because they'd say, hey, it looks great. You know, this is beautiful. And, no, no, but what about those two bricks, right? And, um, the guy said to him, one of the tourists said, well, what about the 998? They're perfect, you know? So what we see often is that the two bricks, you know, why, why is that? You know, what is, what is that? What, what creates that component in us, you know? So... Andre asked me to give this talk about two months ago, six weeks, two months ago. And during that time, I really had my attention on the two bricks. <laughs> like mad, right? Just, I can't tell you how many times I've rehearsed this talk in my head. A thousand would be probably not enough, you know, over that time. Literally. You know, finding myself sitting, you know, and all of a sudden I'm giving a Dharma talk, blah, 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 you know. And then I go, oh no, here, I'm here, here. Present, sitting, ah. Bringing myself back to the present moment experience, you know. About two years ago, I stopped working. Uh, retired and you know I'm kind of just hoping that the snowball lasts long enough you know for me to to pass away (laughs) you know not much left you know melt it down Um, and it's given me gave me the opportunity to go on a long retreat for the first time long like since 1984 a long time I've been practicing but I could never find the time to go do this practice so I had this whole idea around what the three-month retreat was going to be, how it was going to be. And here I am, back there. And I kept having this conversation, rehearsing a conversation with the boss that I had left, the job I had left. I hadn't retired yet when I went on the retreat, right? I knew I knew I was not going to continue working though. There was some part of me that knew I wasn't going to continue working. But I decided to not say that when I left. So I responsibly took care of my job and so forth and so on. And this person is a friend of mine I've known for like 1967, a very long time, who was my boss. And here I am back in IMS, doing my dharma, sitting, you know, doing a thing. And here I am rehearsing the conversation with her about what I'm going to say when I come back and tell, you know, like, and it was 
pretty constant, right? So I started sort of reflecting on, okay, so what is it that keeps creating that thought? That conversation, the rehearsing. And I started to recognize there was, first, I didn't feel like it was, I didn't handle it well. There was some deceit. My sila, my sense of harmony, my sense of ethics around how I left it wasn't quite right, right? So it kept coming up, kept going, you know, and then I have this conversation. And so, because I felt a sense of, you know, sense of disease around it, disquiet, sense of, I wasn't being honest about it. So, remembering the quote, this unfolding, right? The surprise of the unfolding. This is what this evening is going to be for me and you. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, at some point, if you feel like, if during this talk, you get the compulsion or you have a question or you want to just ask something about what I just said, feel free to raise your hand because that'd be the best way to do it and then we'll get you a mic and you can ask a question or make a statement or make a comment this is something I that's one of the conversations that I've been having in my head about it you know to present that uh, in that way One of the questions that I had about tonight was, why, why practice? Why do we practice? You know. I've been following this path for like, it'll be three decades next year. You know. And, and I don't want to discourage you by, by that. <laughs> Please don't take that as a discourage. Wow, the guy, he's, he's like this and he's been, you know, 30 years. My gosh, I should go someplace else. You know, that will, yeah. But the practice doesn't change in a way. You know, I think our relationship to it changes over time. Um, I was thinking today about my very first 10-day Vipassana retreat. And it was the very first Vipassana practice I'd ever done just happened to be this person that was on Maui and there was this thing happening and everybody said, hey, we're going to do this Vipassana thing. And I go, what the heck's that? Well, you sit, you sit, for 10 days you're silent. I'd never been silent for my whole life for five minutes. And I thought, whoa, that's intense. And then, yeah, and then you, you sit still for 45 and then you walk and then and I said, whoa. And the partner I had at the time had done a Goenka retreat. So she said, it'll be okay, you know. I said, okay. And it's funny what I remember about it because the teacher was an amazing uh, uh, Sri Lankan monk, a sister Ayakema, and, and who, who became quite a, a scholar and practitioner on jhanas, actually, written several books. I, I recommend looking into it. Um, but I, you know, what I was remembering today was I had a couple friends on the retreat and I was so irritated with one of them because she kept going, ah, 
You know, and I'm sitting here and I'm going, oh my God. And she, and she was caught and, and she, she was a big personality too, you know, really an amazing person. And I was just saying, oh, so I had this tremendous aversion and I thought, what is this? Ten days of this? You know? And then, of course, my body was like screaming out. But the one thing that I actually didn't have any issue with that I thought was the biggest issue was being silent. I loved it. Just something I'd never been exposed to. So, you know, right? So all of a sudden, I'm immersed in the silence. I'm not having to relate to anybody. I'm not having to be me, you know, be on all the time, you know, seen a certain way. And it was just so great. You know, just kind of settle in. Over time, the pain kind of moved around. You sort of work with it. You kind of, you know, it, it, it became... Now, I, do I remember anything about the retreat? No, you know, hardly anything, you know. Uh, maybe we did some Four Noble Truths or whatever. There was a beautiful metta. Um, she was a beautiful metta uh, meditation teacher. And she just taught this beautiful... And that was fabulous. I'd never heard of it. You know, which is, it's loving kindness, it's usually, usually translated as friendliness that's in, done in this tradition if you're kind of new. And you know, I had a couple pot plants that I was sort of cultivating over in this property that I was caretaking. And so after the retreat, I thought, I don't think that's right livelihood. It doesn't feel right, you know. It felt like it was kind of... So I went and pulled them up, you know, and did that. And then about two months later, I'm thinking, well, that was stupid, you know. (laughs) know? So, you know, I had this sort of intense experience, you know, and then it's sort of of back to life as it is, you know, wherever we're at, you know, kind of going through it all, you know. Like I didn't have this, okay, I'm there, you know, no problem, you know. Um... You know, this practice in some ways is a lot like a boat. You know, a sailboat, it tacks. It goes this way and this way and it looks like it's almost going in the opposite direction and eventually over time, it gets out there on that, on that direction. I have a friend who says I ramble and so this is definitely rambling. Um... But I wanted to share a funny story that happened um, recently, uh, very recently, like about within a week. I was driving back, uh, some of you may know, Crystal Springs Road from Burlingame area. And it's a very narrow little windy road. You know, it's hard. There's no place even to pull off on it. And this has to do with perception, which is one of um, the five khandas. Uh, which we'll talk maybe a little bit about, maybe we won't. Um, and also, the, that's a third, th- perception is a third khanda in our tradition, and then there's a fourth called sankara, or mental formations, or fabrications. This sort of combines these two together. So I'm driving along, and I hear this clunk, kind of like something, the experience, what I thought was, I have this rack on my car and this bike rack and I thought something fell off and it hit the car and kind of banged down on a curve. So I, I, um, 
I drive a little bit and like, oh, whoa, I better pull off and go back and look. So I, I pull off kind of and I get out and I look at the top of the rack kind of quickly and I go, oh, there's something missing there. Something must have fallen off. So I, I, uh, so to make a long story short, because for the next 45 minutes, I'm walking up and down, circling back to what curve I thought I was on, thinking that I'm looking for this thing that I'm supposed to be finding that I thought fell off my car, right? And I'm feeling all this stuff. I'm noticing, I'm worried about the money. I'm going, oh man, I'm never going to find that piece. How can you get it separately? Oh no, and then the time and the hassle and I'm just feeling all this anxiety and irritation. But you know, I don't have a job so I can wander around for 45 minutes and look for this thing, right? So finally I say, okay, I give up. I finally let go of it. I go, okay. I get in my car and I drive to my house. I'm pulling into the garage and I get out and I look at this thing again. Nothing's missing. Nothing's missing. I had this huge proliferation because of some momentary fear of losing something, this attachment to it. Right? And it caught me up, literally, walking up and down the road, man, trying to find places to park. And just, it was pretty funny, you know? I thought, wow. And I wonder, I say, that, that's a pretty consistent state of mind. You know, it's an easy thing to get lost in these trances, you know, these trances about, you know, what we what we hold important, you know, what we think is important. This, so it, the, this, my stuff coming off of the car, you know, the cost, the hassle, all the difficulty of it, you know, getting wound up, so wound up that I was imagining something. Of course, a rock hit my car or something, I ran over it and it's, you know, but, um, But it's interesting how I think the thing that this practice enables us to do on some levels, hopefully, is to see more quickly, in a way, that we're in this trance, you know? It's not about not being in the trance, you know? It's about recognizing we're in the trance when, when it's there, when, when we lose that perspective. And um, I wanted to say a little bit about um, the relationship between getting rid of something and opening up to it. And um, I'm trying to think of a way to kind of segue into it. I think um, I have a couple. I think the thing I wanted to share tonight as well is I describe myself as a dedicated practitioner, somebody that's dedicated 30 years to a practice. I think falls into that category. 
I don't consider myself a teacher, right? But if I have something to share with somebody that's useful, that may be beneficial, that was helpful for me, then I'm going to do that. I'm going to offer that. And then at the sa- in the same way, we do that with each other. And one of the things that felt so good tonight was this sangha, this support, you know, that, that each of us, for whatever our reasons, we said, I need to practice. I need to do something. Why? Why? Maybe. Um, those, we all have our reasons why we come to practice. Often it's, you know, the simplest explanation is dukkha. You know, something... Um, it's translated often as suffering or unsatisfactoriness. The etymology I like even better, which is do, which is sort of translated as bad, and ka, which is before it was space and so forth, is whole, specifically axle hole. Because back in the day with ox carts, if you had an out around axle hole, it was a pretty bumpy ride. So the experience of the bumpy ride brings us to practice. You know, what is it? You know, this sort of subtle vibration, this subtle unsatisfactoriness, maybe this subtle angst, maybe this more dramatic, we're acting out in some way. You know, I had issues with drugs and alcohol pretty much my whole life. Uh, not so much over the last decade or so, but still, even with my practice, it was still something I was working with. So that sense of disquiet, that sense of being out around that vibration brings us to practice. So we're all here on some level for in varying degrees to learn what that process is. Find out how we can support each other in that practice, how we can learn the practice, what's beneficial, what's not so beneficial, what choices we make that are beneficial, what choices we make that aren't. I want to read a a short quote from a a sutta that some of you know, I think. Some won't. There was a a practitioner named Bahia and he lived on the coast. And one day he just had this idea he thought he might be enlightened so he kind of you know am I enlightened or am I not enlightened you know so uh, a deva came down Brahma deva and said no dude you're not enlightened not even close you know and he says you know I'm going to I'm shorten it a little bit and and he says so um, so who you know is there somebody out there that is who is how do I how do I find out because he had some practitioners that were following him, some of the little following. 
And he says, no, this guy, the, the, you know, the Buddha, you know, is out over here. You know, you, and, and, and he says, well, I got to go now. He says, so he leaves and he travels many, many miles. I think it was like 500 miles on foot. So that's a long way and he's moving. And he gets to the Buddha and the Buddha's on alms rounds. And um, so he comes up to him and he says, you know, oh Buddha, you know, I really, really need you to give me the teaching. You know, I'm feeling a great deal of urgency um, and I just have to know. I have to know. And he says, well, wait, you know, wait a second. I'm, I'm on ROMs. Give me a second here, you know, catch, you know, let me do my thing and we'll come back. And, and then so the... So the tradition is if uh, somebody asks an arahant or the Buddha three times, then they have to answer on the three times. So he asks them two more times. And um, the Buddha said, okay, okay, okay. Okay, I'm going to give you the teaching. So this is, what, this is one translation. It's actually in the uh, Udana. And it's, uh, this is instructions to Bahia from the Buddha. In the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, let there be just the herd. In the sensed, let there be just the sensed. In the cognized, let there be just the cognized. Then there will be no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. Then you will be neither here, nor there, nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So, this was given to me on my retreat. (laughs) I was like, huh? Whoa. So, at that point, Bahia awoken. Bam. He was like, okay, this was it. That's all he needed. Bam, right? So I offered that tonight. I'm sort of seeing if anybody here maybe from hearing this, you know? <laughs> Anybody's light flashing, eyes glowing, hair on fire? No, okay. <laughs> We're not going to tell you. Yeah, there you go. You can't talk about your accomplishments or your attainments I know but this was something that was very meaningful to me and I I, you know um, so when I find things that are meaningful I like to share them you know with, with my fellow practitioners with the Sangha And in a way, it sort of ties into one of the things that I really would like to somewhat emphasize. Um, if, yeah, it's not, yeah, this is miserable. Okay. Yeah. Um,
many of you are af- af- aware of the Buddha's first Dharma talk, which was the Four Noble Truths, right? Anybody here never heard of the Four Noble Truths? Okay. So, <clears throat> what does it mean, you know? Um, how, you know, so, so the question for me is, how do I apply the Four Noble Truths in a way that I can explore through my meditation practice? Right? And one of the things that I wanted to talk about briefly was the difference between opening up to something and even welcoming something and the difference between wanting to get rid of it, right? To somehow change it, to somehow control it, to make it the way we want it to be, right? So yeah, so the first noble truth, there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness, things will arise in our lives that we're going to find difficult or really that we want. But what will happen to that? Oops. It'll go away, which will result similarly with that same sense of, ah, right? So how do I practice with that? In the Four Noble Truths, each truth has the statement, there is dukkha. That's the first noble truth. But also in that is sort of the practice. Dukkha is to be understood. And then the last is dukkha has been understood. Right? So... How do I open up to something? I have to understand it. How do I understand dukkha? How do I understand it? I have to be willing to open up to it. I can't get to know it if I'm trying to make it go away, do something to it, change it. So in order for us to experience and understand dukkha, we have to allow it to be just as it is. Right? And from my point of view, that's the practice. You know, Gil puts a lot of emphasis on clinging. You know, letting go of clinging. And it's the same thing. It's that sense of, oh, okay, this isn't quite right, right? So that, that, so the second noble truth, right, we say is the cause of the origin of dukkha is craving, right? Whatever that, that expression, tanha, thirst, you know, whatever it's sensual desire or it's becoming something or not becoming something, 
right? But in the same way, the second noble truth, the statement, the cause of the origin of suffering is tanha, craving. What's the practice? To abandon it. We need to abandon that. Okay, how do I abandon it? Well, first I have to understand it, right? To even see, okay, this is, here it is. And then once I understand it, oh, I understand that the cause of it is because I'm trying to control, maneuver, manipulate, and I'm clinging to this idea, right? So, One of my teachers is Ajahn Sumedho. And one of the things that he talked about was he has the kind of personality that resists naturally. I do too. I happen to identify with that personality. And there's this immediate impulse to resist. And what he saw after many, many years, he's been a practicing monk for 45 or some long time, a Western monk, he recognized that he had to start welcoming these things that he's resisting. Oh, I can't be bothered with that. Or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, This is so irritating. I can't. So it took an effort, you know, a presence of awareness to say, okay, I need to open to this. How do I open to this? How do I learn actually to welcome it instead of get rid of it? You know? And I think it relates in some ways to the notion that happiness is trying to accumulate stuff that's going to make me feel good, that's going to, right? And it's similar in that I just have to Welcome whatever's there. You know, be content with this. What does that look like? You know, if we stop and think about being contented in this moment just as it is, what is that? If I'm contented with this moment just as it is, What's that? How does that feel? Feels pretty peaceful in a way. There isn't any, uh, you know, no, I want this, I don't want this, uh, you know. And it doesn't have to be, like with this practice, it doesn't have to be earth-shattering things. It can be the simplest thing, you know, supermarket three kids all snotting, you know, rubbing their hands over all the food, you know, whatever, you know, it's like you're going, oh my God. (laughs) Like if you're a germaphobe a little bit, you're like, oh my God. So watching what that is, what is that? How is that experience right there? Like what? Wow. That's intense. I don't want that. You know, I really want that to change. You know, but can I just be present right there in that situation? Can I even say to the mother who's trying to, you know, get them all together, boy, I have the compassion for her suffering. Oh my gosh, my goodness, you know. Can I have that experience in that moment, you know, and connect to that? 
you know, the suffering of that. Because I don't know about you, but the first two noble truths are kind of where I'm at most of the time. The cessation, Naroda, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, I know. You're supposed to just, you know, realize is, 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 is the practice for that one, right? There, there is cessation, you know. Uh, and so the practice is realizing that, right? But, you know, good, for goodness sake, the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path, is the fourth, which is to be developed, right? So, fortunately, we're not left in this whole morass spinning around without any directions, without a little, like, some signposts, like, okay, so maybe we, you know, maybe we apply a little right effort, right intention, right, you know, you know, samaditi. But it's like, How quickly do I recognize that I'm looking for something that doesn't even exist? You know, how quickly do I recognize um, the dukkha of wanting to give a good talk, right? You know, and wanting to be seen some way, right? And comparing myself to, God forbid, Gil or, you know, Andre or whoever. You know, it doesn't matter. And then get, being lost in that. That, that's, that easy, that sort of creating some idea of who I'm supposed to be. You know, I think it's like somebody once said, samsara is correcting is an endless correction. There's a sense of always trying to create some kind of change, some kind of fix to make it better, to make it this way, make it that way. Right? I don't get up here much, so I'm going to read you a couple more quotes that I like. So this one was offered by Sylvia Borenstein um, on a long retreat. And this is from Ajahn Amaro, who's a teacher in this tradition. And I really like this one as well. And I think it's kind of important in terms of our practice. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. And let it stay that way. Only attend to whatever arises to disturb that natural peace and ease. I'll read that again. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and let it stay that way. Only attend to whatever arises to disturb that natural peace and ease. So what is he saying? Rest in the natural peace and ease of mind and body. Right? Easy peasy. But when we're not, we might attend to whatever's disturbing that. 
right? And we notice it. And then we notice when we're natural peace and ease, when there's a pleasant abiding. Oh, pleasant abiding's like this. Irritation's like this, right? Connecting to the present moment experience, present moment awareness. And I got one more for you. This one's from Ajahn Mun, who was Ajahn Chah's teacher. And Ajahn Chah's teacher was Jack Cornfield's teacher and Ajahn Sumedho's and very fun-loving monk in Thailand. Really, really sweet, sweet, sweet human being. But this Ajahn Mun... Actually, Ajahn Chan kind of went to find him out in the forest. This Ajahn Mun was a serious forest monk, you know, like didn't have a dwelling, lived in the jungle, got, slept under the trees, tigers, lions, and bears, oh my. Yeah? The real deal, right? So here's this guy. <laughs> and the re- I, and this, this quote, I'd like to just share this one other thing. This quote comes from the Katanyuta, Shack. It's a little, sort of a, actually shrine up at Spirit Rock. So if you ever get up to Spirit Rock and you walk up towards the temple or the meditation hall, on your left there's a little small hut. And inside that hut are all these photographs of all of the teachers in our tradition that go quite a ways back. Ajahn Mun's photograph there. And there's... There's some fierce looking people, I can tell you. But the katanyuta means like gratitude, but in a specific way towards our lineage, towards all of our teachers, right? And there's um, Burmese teachers in there. There's some Zen teachers. There's Tibetan. There's a really, it's a beautiful, and there's lots of sweet quotes. And, and I found this one in there and I, I wrote it down because I thought it was so wonderful. So this is Ajahn Mun. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature, the body. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lividly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. So this whole thing, mind and body, yeah? There's a theme there. You know, from one of the first teachers of our time, right? Ajahn Amaro, who was also a student of Ajahn Chah. So, we have a few minutes before we uh, bid our adieu. So I thought I'd at least give anybody the opportunity if they wanted to say something about tonight's ramblings. Um, Maria? 
So I've always had a question about the second noble truth. Like, let's say someone's in an abusive relationship and they have longing because they want to be treated well, or someone's in a depression and they have longing because they just want to be happier, or someone's unemployed and they have longing because they want a job. If they eliminated those longings, they wouldn't get a better life. They would just be in a horrible one. So what's the end to their suffering? So I'm, yeah, I'm not going to say that I'm necessarily the best source to, to respond to this, but so what you're describing is the desire for something beneficial, Right, right. Versus what what <clears throat> the second noble truth is translated as tanha, this thirst, sort of this craving, this sense of not quite enough. You know, um, I think I think coming to the practice itself is a desire. A wholesome desire, right? So desires themselves, the desire to to meditate, to get out of an abusive relationship, to be treated well, right? To get a job, to improve our lives, our stations, to take care of our family. All, all that is very well-intended intention, right? Um... I think the challenge can be whether, and I'm not saying I'm not saying this is the case, but how do we respond if we don't get? You know, how do we respond to uh, a situation where we want something and we don't, we're not able to get it? Can we let go of that? Can we hold it loosely? Can we not cling to it? How much, how much are we straining to, to get this experience, right? Um, so I think there's a term chanda, which is like a desire, but it's, a, it's more of a beneficial desire. You know, I'm not a Pali scholar, but I've heard it used in a way where chanda is kind of seeking, you know, an elevation in practice, Right? So in your case, I think those, I don't know if that's helpful, what I just said. Yeah, so basically we should eliminate like superficial longings, but not the beneficial ones. We Say what? So we should keep the beneficial longings that we have, but we should release the ones that are not beneficial for us? Well, I think, I think you know, what the Buddha would say was that you're, you're speaking somehow, you know, like the, res, the results, the causes and conditions if we behave in a way that's wholesome or beneficial, then it's much greater percentage or opportunity that we'll have that kind of a result, right? If we're, if we're behaving in a way that we know is unwholesome, like my story about not quite feeling like I was totally honest when I left, you know, I knew I wasn't coming back to work, you know, that kind of a feeling... That was a little deceptive. And so the karma of that, it kind of haunted me. You know, it did really haunt me and it kind of kept coming up and coming up. So I think that 
we can start to recognize that chain, that causal cause and, and conditions. Does that make sense? Jim, you want to comment on that? Uh, I think a big difference uh, between the desire you talk about and the kind that causes dukkha is the self-inflicted part um, mm-hmm. to want something and maybe not get it, you know, get the job or something mm-hmm. like that. It's one thing to realize, oh, that's happened and that's going to happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. And the other is the part that you make it you know, like stirring salt into the wound or something by making it uh, resent, you know, resentment of it or sure. uh, woe is me type of thing. Yeah, poor me. That you add on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the story of the, you know, the arrows, the, the darts. You know, the first dart is maybe the problem and then we start adding to, oh, wow, what does this mean? You know, all this the papancha and the proliferation about it. And we cause all this other, you know, kind of unintended consequences. Yeah, just go right up close to your mouth and speak up. Is it green, the button, the light? Okay. It's holiday, green and red. (laughs) Hello? There you go. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my take on it is uh, the problem is being attached to the outcome Mm -hmm. and being hooked into you want to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. And my own experience is that in times where I've totally let go of the outcome I wanted, mm-hmm. and it was usually out of complete exasperation. <laughs> when I totally let go, uh, there's just incredible miracles happened. I mean, yeah. what I wanted showed up. It was right there. And, um, but letting go is tricky because sometimes I think I let go, but I get this little hook <laughs> in here. <laughs> but yeah. the times I just was totally exhausted, like I said, and it was consistent. It just just yeah. showed up in a miraculous way. Yeah, that's right. very, very well put. Yeah. So we're almost down to the wire here. We have... Thank you so much for your attention tonight, by the way. Uh, teaching me and giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit and uh, thank you very much for your attention